Let us pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank You for Your mercy and Your great long-suffering and Your grace that is richly bestowed upon us through the righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to be mindful of these bounties in a more understanding way and not take them for granted as so often I believe we do. We become aggravated at our own sinfulness and yet there are times when we would roll sin under our tongue like a sweet morsel. We wonder how such things can be, and yet we're reminded that the great Apostle Paul spoke about when he would do good, evil was present with him. And yet somehow we find it hard to think of Paul being such a sinner as we are. We would put him on a pedestal and Nigh to worship Him, I'm afraid, sometimes, in which He would have none, nothing of that. And it is an abomination that we should do so. And when we read the Scriptures of Paul talking about the warfare, the flesh against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and the two being contrary the one to the other so that we're not able to do what we would. We really think that Paul is such a man as we are He too had his struggles. We're not prepared to say what his thorn in the flesh was. And he besought you and we don't imagine it was just a little casual prayer 
but on three occasions, desiring that it be removed from him. And you reminded him that your grace is sufficient. And Paul testified that the thorn was given to him to keep him from being exalted above measure. And I would suppose that we too would puff ourselves up and think us to be somewhat if we were not plagued with sin. That it teaches us, that keeps us from being exalted above measure. And yet on the other hand, we wonder how in the world we would even do such a thing. And then conversely, we find ourselves somewhat thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our pride and vanity. Bless us to humble ourselves under Your mighty hand that we may be exalted in due time. And that the exaltation that we're really looking for is not something in this lifetime, but when we are with You in glory. in the resurrected, glorified body. Truly, as the song so aptly says, what a day that will be. Nevertheless, we must live out our lives here upon this earth, and I pray that you would give us insight from your word that it would work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure and that we would endeavor to work out our own salvation according to the teaching thereof. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to verses 7 through 12 of 1 John 4. And I would remind you that these divisions that I have given are arbitrarily mine. Uh, someone else who may uh, preach through this, they might have different sections, and I would not be one to say that mine would be better than theirs. Uh, it's just as I try to prayerfully look at them and study them and uh, break them up, 
Now that's what I did, and yet sometimes uh, when I get through, it looks like say, well, it looks like it would have been better to have done it another way. But anyway, uh, we're going through it, and I would remind you what what you already know, which is that when this was originally written, there were no verses. There were no chapters. It was just all one letter. And to my knowledge, there were no paragraphs. There was no stopping or starting. Uh, it was just uh, written out and uh, from that standpoint. But I am thankful for the chapter divisions and the verses. It, can, it helps us to uh, stay on the same page while we are working through it. If, if there were no uh, chapter divisions or there were no verses, it would be hard if I were to say, well, look up where it says, Hereby know we the Spirit of truth. Uh, you'd say, well, where in the world's that? Is that chapter 1? Is that the beginning, the end, the middle, or where? You know, you'd have a hard time finding that. But uh, I'm going to read verses 7 through 12 and hopefully present some type of a uh, some type of a continuity. As we did the first part of, of this epistle, particularly uh, verses uh, one, two, and three, uh, we looked at that with the false, showing the difference between the false and the true spirits. And then verses uh, uh, four, four, five, and six, we're talking about overcoming the false spirits. And so now we're coming to. Uh, 7 through 12, and I have designated this or subtitled it uh, Loving One Another. In other words, it seems that these verses are basically talking about loving one another. And as you know, we have seen that John over and over in this epistle has talked about loving one another. So it's not anything new. He's just reiterating and reiterating it and coming at it from a different perspective. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that, he might, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now note he starts this out, Beloved, as we saw this morning, when he said that uh, that uh, they are of the world and therefore speak they of the world and the world heareth them, we are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, and he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And then he says, Beloved, John was not talking to unbelievers. He's not talking about God loving every individual. He's talking about believers. And we'll see this and focus on it more so when we get to the fifth chapter, but I'll read uh, 1 John 5.13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice, he's writing to believers. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. You remember in John's Gospel... In his, uh, at, as he comes to the end of his gospel, in chapter 20 of, John, of the gospel of John, he talks about that there were many other things that were written that he, that many other things Jesus did that were not written in this book. But he said, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through His name. Now when you look at the verb tense there, as well as the verb tense in 1 John 5.13, what is being said there is that He's writing to those who are already believers that they might keep on believing. John's Gospel, nor his epistle, was written for the world and for somebody that is not a believer, that they might believe and become a believer. But it's written to people who, were, who are already believers. And here in verse 7, of the fourth chapter of this epistle. Beloved, let us love one another. Children of God, in other words. Again, I, I, I direct your attention to the verse preceding. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, who's the beloved? It is we that are of God. It is you that are of God. As he said in verses 4 and 6. Beloved, you who are of God. 
Not a person that's unregenerate. Not a person that needs to be born again. Not a person that should uh, do something in order to be born again. Of course, he can't do that. God has to do it. But, beloved, let us love one another. Children of God have to be told to do what they ought to do and what is instilled in them to do. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Prior to our regeneration, according to Titus 3.3, we were hateful and hating one another. We were hateful and hating one another. I just quoted part of that verse. But uh, I'll, I'll go there and read. <coughs> Titus 3.3 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, Deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so on. What do you see going on in the world today? People that are doing what? Hating. They're hateful and hating one another. And why is that? Because they are of the world. They haven't been born again. Their hearts haven't been changed. They don't have the love of God in them. We are not only commanded to love one another, but loving one another is a is a trait 
that is just as effectual as a mother loving her child. Though sad to say, in this generation there are many women that hate their children. They're not mothers. They're just a, a female that hates children. That's not natural. Dogs and cats and bears and uh, lions and tigers, they have more What's the word I'm looking? They have more that shows their what's natural than sinful humans. You remember the passage in First Thessalonians chapter four and verse nine. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Paul is, is, is saying, I don't have to write and tell you to love one another. If you're born again, you're taught of God to love one another. Now that doesn't mean that we as children of God... Don't ever uh, get cross with other other uh, believers and sometimes rub each other the wrong way and things of that nature. But what do we do about it? We, we come together again. We ask each other forgiveness and we, uh, we show that love one to another. And remember that Christian love is not a feeling first. Biblical love, scriptural love, is doing action one for the other. In other words, you can love your enemy. You may not like your enemy, but you can love him. You can do good toward him. As we saw, as we would see, if we were to turn over there and read Matthew uh, chapter 5, Verses around 48, 49, and so on. Beloved, let us love one another. Because we're not of the world. First John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I can assure you we could uh, multiply verses that tell us that we are to love one another. You remember the classic passage in 
John 13, 34, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And you may get tired of me pointing this out every time I quote that verse, but there might be somebody out there in the internet that hasn't heard this yet. Notice that it said, that we by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Oftentimes it's quoted one for another. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, I can hold this uh, cup of water up in my hand and I can say, I've got a cup of water for you. Well, that sounds good, but that cup of water doesn't do you any good until I give it to you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Love what? In action. Love, it's not a feeling. It didn't say... Uh, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you feel good one to another. Sometimes husband and wife, brother, sister, uh, son or daughter, whatever, you know, sometimes you don't feel good toward the other. <laughs> but you still love them. Beloved, let us love one another. Don't love the world. Love one another. Let me read from Robert Candish again. Well, it may be, I think I just summarized him. Uh, some of it is a quote, but some of it. Candish pointed out that in this epistle, light, righteousness, and love are the three elements of fellowship with the Father and the Son. You know, it talks about light in verse 1, I mean chapter 1 and so on. He further said, quote, Of the three, light and righteousness have been the heads or leading thoughts of the two previous parts of this exposition. That is, in verses... Uh, 3 through 17 and 18 through 30. That would be in the well, maybe I in I don't remember the context now. Love is the ruling idea of the third part. Love being the end to which the others are the means. The consummation of the fellowship being uh, of the fellowship being in love. God is love. Notice what he said. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Love is of God. And we know that already uh, He has told us in it that, that God is love. 
He tells us that two times in this epistle. Tells that in verse 8. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Of all of the attributes of God, Holiness or holy is not spoken of more than any other. Of all the attributes of God, love is basically preached about more than any of the others. The average sermon out there under the, under the guise of Christianity is that God loves everybody. Well, God doesn't love everybody. It plainly says in Romans 9 that God hated Esau. That doesn't mean that God had mean feelings toward Esau. It means God left Esau where he was. He didn't do good toward him. He did just before him. God loved Jacob. How was that? He chose him. He didn't choose Esau. He left him to himself. But God doesn't love everybody. That's plain from Scripture. But that's commonly what's taught. And even among what's called reform circles or sovereign grace circles, the gospel and our justification is presented to the audience as if God justified everybody if you believe, though they would say God justifies when you believe, they don't normally, I'm talking about what's called reform camps. Uh, remember, true Baptists are not reformed. Baptists were around before there were reformers. Baptists are not reformed. You have to keep that in mind. But today, and I'm just kindly uh, using 
using the word as a catch-all phrase, as I might use the word Calvinism, though Baptists are not Calvinist. We don't sprinkle. We don't believe the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. And there's a lot of other things that we differ from Calvin. We're not Calvinist. We're Baptist. But generally considered in the camps of theology, we who believe in the doctrines of grace are classified as Calvinist and we're classified under the, under the uh, uh, overall uh, category of being Reformed. And so I'll use it in that way, though uh, I've already given you the caveats of using those terms that way, and uh, that's the whole premise of the podcast that I put out, is to show that Baptists are not Protestants. But sometimes it's good to use those terminologies with respect to people out there in in the world that don't know the difference. But the love of God extends only to the elect of God or the sheep of God. And to say that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection justifies you if you will believe is true. But it implies that God justified everybody unless you believe. And it's so close to being the truth, which is really not the truth, because Christ only justified the elect. Your belief is not what justifies you. It is the blood of Christ that justifies you. Your belief is what brings justification to the heart and soul of a elect child of grace that's been regenerated. And while the general consensus is, or the general consensus that's preached among Armenian and Reformed camp, and in many Baptist camps, that God God loves you. You just need to believe. And you'll be justified. And they preach love, 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 and hardly ever preach on holiness. The holiness of God. And the Bible tells us over 600 times that God is holy. 
I found that out years ago before there was a computer program for the Bible and just looking at Strong's Concordance and looking up the word holy, holiest, holier, and other words for holy for God over 600 times when the Bible only says twice that God is love. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize God's love. I'm not giving those statistics to minimize the love of God. God forbid. I'm glad God loved me. I'm glad God loved me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I was dead in trespasses and in sin, God still looked upon me in Christ. Though I was His enemy, I was ungodly. And the Scriptures plainly said that Christ died for us when we were enemies and when we were ungodly. But He didn't die for the non-elect. He didn't die for those who hate one another. He didn't die for those who love the world. You say, well, maybe somebody loves the world now, but later on they'll be born again. Well, when, when they're born again, they won't love the world. But until that time, all we can do is classify them uh, according to their fruit. We have to be fruit inspectors, not heart inspectors. We don't know the heart. Though the fruit is a pretty good indication of what the heart is. But sometimes it, the fruit and the heart are so uh, vague, we just have to say, well, uh, I don't know about that person. I just leave that in the hands of God. I don't make a judgment. But God loves His children so much that He chastens them so that they are partakers of His holiness. Hebrews 12. Here again, this is so clear. Here in Hebrews 12, this is so clear that you cannot miss what God is saying. He's talking to people that were being persecuted for their faith. 
And I'm going to pick up in verse 5 instead of starting in the first verse. But I want you to know that, and you can go back and read the whole book of Hebrews for, if you want to, but you'll see that God is telling these Hebrew people that they being persecuted for believing in Christ, for being Christians, they, they were being chastened of God. You see, chastisement is not always disciplining us because we do something wrong. Chastisement is also to train us for doing what's right or to do what's right. In other words, when a person goes into the vineyard and cuts away all the dead wood of the grapevine the year before and leaves a few buds on each trailing vine and ties that vine to the wire or the trellis so that it will be held off the ground. All of that, cutting away the dead wood, tying up the, the new vines and so on, all of that is a form of chastisement or training. And if I had time to look at all these words for it, uh, one of the words is used in Ephesians 6, talking about children. I remember in college when I, uh, one of the, uh, one of the lab experiments outdoors was that we, in one of my agricultural classes, and uh, I had to go in and trim it a grapevine. And uh, when I first got through with it, the professor came around and said, well, Barbara, I, I'm afraid you haven't, you haven't done, cut quite enough off. <laughs> and so, uh, you ha if I remember correctly, we had to cut all the dead growth and all of the new growth off of this one trailing vine back to two buds. And so what you had, you had the main stalk of that grapevine and down below you had a wire running across and then up at the top you had a wire running across and so you had one vine running out to the right on the, the lower wire and one running out to the left from the main trunk of the vine and then at the top you had uh, a, a vine running out to the right and one running out to the left and on each one of those vines you only had two buds left 
So you cut off all the dead growth and you cut off all the new growth back to two buds. That way, you didn't, uh, you didn't have a lot of uh, bunches with a little bit of grapes on it. You had a few bunches, but they had big grapes. That's the way God prunes us oftentimes. That's the way He chastens us. He not only cuts off a lot of the dead growth, sometimes He cuts off a lot of the new growth. But anyway, chastisement is not always being punished for doing wrong. It's, all, it's as we see here. And picking up in verse 5, he said, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. You're being persecuted for your faith the writer of Hebrews is saying. But don't throw up your hands. Don't don't faint. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth some of the sons No, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you're a child of God, you're chastened at one time or another. In fact, if you're a child of God, your life is a life of continual chastisement. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Verse 7, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. If you're not, every child of grace is chastened. Some more, some less. Some we may see, some we may never see. But every child of grace is chastened. Because he plainly says, if you're without chastisement, you're a bastard. You're not a son. Plain. Plain. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? 
For they, for a few days, chasten us after their pleasure, own pleasure. Now, what that that doesn't mean? That's not talking about a uh, uh, a mean father that just uh, beats his child just for the fun of it. That's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about our father that chastened us after their own pleasure. In other words, they chastened us because they thought it was good for us. I love my Father for chastening me. I remember some of the chastisements of my father and my mother. Now my father only spanked me one time. But he gave me a warning and he said, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. I did it again. He spanked me. He wasn't like these modern day parents. If you do that again, I'm going to get you. They do it. If you do that again, I'm going to get you. They do it again. You do that again, I'm going to get you. You know what that does? That provokes a child to anger. I knew my father meant what he said. And when he, I remembered just as clear as if it were yesterday, laying on the couch, starting to cry when I heard my father walking in the back door that day because I knew what he was going to do. He was going to spank me, and he did. But you know what? When my dad told me from then on, if I did so and so, what the consequences was, if I didn't want the consequences, I didn't do it. I knew he meant what he said. I respect him for it. I love him for it. Same thing with my mother. I really think our peach tree out the back door died from her pulling limbs off of it. But I don't know if that's the case. But uh, my mother loved me. And I thank God for my parents. They chastened me. They thought it was for my good. They didn't do it. I never. I don't ever remember thinking my parents were chastening me because they were mean. Now, like every other teenager, I thought they wouldn't let me do what I wanted to because they were kind of mean. <laughs> but when I got older, I realized the difference in that. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their pleasure. For their own pleasure. But He that is God for our profit. God chastens us for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. That's why God chastens you. That you might be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. 
I never enjoyed any spankings that my parents gave me. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And I can honestly say, as I've already said today, I thank God for them. I thank God for their love for me. My mother one time, my grandparents on my mother's side, they lived maybe a quarter of a mile from us, very short distance. Might have even been just an eighth of a mile, but it's very short. And for some reason, we had a lot of tomatoes that year, but my grandmother didn't. And I told my mother I was going to take my grandmother some tomatoes. She said, don't you do that. You stay here. Well, I I just barely remember this, but I went ahead and took my grandmother an armload of tomatoes. And as soon as I got to my grandmother's house and was handing them to my grandmother, uh-oh, right behind me was my mother. She missed me. She figured out where I was going. And uh, she laid into me every time my foot hit the ground. She hit me all the way back home. But you know what? I never ran off again. I never endangered myself on the road. I knew not to play out in the road. I knew to stay in the yard. She loved me. She loved me. She didn't want me to run it off again. And of course I got what I deserved. She didn't just pick me up and spank me just because she loved me. She picked me up and spanked me because I did I disobeyed. And she loved me. It yielded the peaceable fruit of the exer- uh, thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Yes, God is love. And He loves us so much that He chastens us that we might be partakers of His holiness. And as we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, We won't go back there. Those that are born of God love God and they know God. Those who do not love do not know God.
Lord willing, we'll come back to this the next time. But you cannot separate loving one another, loving God, and not loving the world. God makes it plain. He doesn't give us any wiggle room. God doesn't give us any wiggle room. Now again, I remind you, this is a way of life. It is not 100% perfection. We are sinners. We have sin. We have to be chastened from our sins. There is chastisement because we do wrong. But the overall ruling attributes of a child of God is that He loves God and He loves God's people and He shows it by His action. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word. It really condemns us You speak to us straightforwardly. But it's plain. It's clear. You don't leave us in the dark. Thank You for the not only the beauty and the purity of Your Word and the truthfulness of Your Word but the clarity of Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.